It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome, everybody, to the newest edition of the Untold Story podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Sam Patton about his new book, which is called Dangerous Company, The Misadventures of a Foreign Agent, and it comes out in early October, so we're giving you a sneak peek here. Sam is a lot of things. He's a fascinating individual and an incredible life story. He's an international political consultant. He has worked extensively in the United States, the Soviet Union, Europe, Africa, Asia, the Middle East. He was appointed a senior advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs. He is a former legislative advisor and speechwriter on Capitol Hill to two U.S. senators, including Susan Collins from Maine. And he has just written this new book. Um, one of the subtitles of the book is sort of tells you a lot, and it has to do with the latest chapter in his life, which is Confessions of a Russiagate Survivor, because he pled guilty as part of the Mueller investigation for work that he was doing uh, as it, prior to the 2016 election. Um, and he was at one point working with Paul Manafort. So, Sam, let me bring you in. It's great to have you with us. I'll, I'll let you do uh, the storytelling from here. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Martha. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that really grabs people, I think, when they hear all of the things that you have done, you're very accomplished, you went to Georgetown University, your family has a lot of ties to uh, leadership roles and intelligence roles in Washington, and you can tell us a, a little bit about that. But most recently, you say that all of your experiences led you to being nearly murdered, on a DC street, getting divorced, moving to Maine, becoming a line cook, a motor coach operator, and an Airbnb host. So how did you get from there to here? Tell us a little bit about your story, Sam. Well, well, gosh, uh, my story begins in Maine, uh, working on political campaigns. You mentioned Susan Collins. I worked for Olympia Snow as well, former senator from Maine, mm -hmm. and ran the Bush-Cheney campaign here in 2000. After President Bush was elected in 2000, I was eager to get out into the, uh, the, the larger world and see where I could be useful. And I got into the business of democracy promotion. Uh, you remember in the Bush administration, we were actively promoting democracy abroad. And after September 11th, that became part of our foreign policy. Uh, because, you know, in, in human history, we haven't seen a lot of cases of democracies going to war with one another. So I went to Russia for the International Republican Institute, which was then chaired by Senator John McCain, and trained political parties on how to run elections. And I, I really focused uh, on opposition parties uh, as opposed to pro-Putin parties, but we did work with everybody. And uh, from there, I went to Iraq after the invasion in 2004. I ran IRI's political program on the ground, preparing the Iraqis for election. And uh, after that, I went into business for myself and became a consultant for foreign politicians, uh, working all over the world, and uh, eventually with Paul Manafort in Ukraine. And that's what sparked the U.S. government's interest in me. 
it's a really interesting story. You run into a lot of nefarious characters along the way because you're dealing with countries that are kind of getting their feet underneath them. And, and you begin your story with new, um, you know, former Soviet republics that are now countries uh, in the middle of that part of the world. So, so just give us a little sense of that. That's where you met your wife and you had a child, which all happens in about a sentence and a half. So um, give us a little sense of, of just a quick glimpse into that part. Sure. My first wife, Aijan, is from Kazakhstan. We met when I was working for an oil company over there. And uh, our son, Max, is uh, he's half Kazakh, half American. I mean, he's, a, he's an American citizen, but like so many Americans, he has heritage in another country, too. The, the Kazakhs are the descendants of Genghis Khan. So there's a, there's a rich tradition there uh, that goes back a long way. And uh, Kazakhstan was a brand new country when I went there in the early 90s. Uh, I did a fair amount of work in some other former Soviet countries, Georgia and perhaps most topically Ukraine. Uh, I spent about 10 years helping uh, political figures across the spectrum, really, in Ukraine uh, prepare for elections. And one of the neat things about Ukraine was the fact that out of all the former Soviet countries, it was the most competitive politically. It was the one country where you had different different sides that would work it out at the ballot box. And uh, that was really unique. And that's something that, uh, you know, with the Russian invasion, we hope that the Ukrainians are successful because that's the kind of influence we want to see on the I want to see. And I think others mm -hmm. do, too. Ukrainians, even even a lot of Russians want to see on their own country. I think Russians are hoping that one day uh, they will live in a free country with a leadership they elect and is accountable to them. So you talk about Vitaly Klitschko and getting to know him, uh, obviously, uh, you know, one of the best known fighters in the world who became the mayor of Kiev. And we've uh, spoken with him here on this program. And, you know, a lot of my colleagues have as well as part of the coverage of, of the Ukraine war. But it seems to me that you know, when you look at Ukraine, it is obviously a, sort of a battle between Russian and Ukrainian allegiances and a, a struggle for Ukrainian government to sort of shed Russian influence and, you know, have a real Ukrainian leadership and to get to a place where they're not considered corrupt as a government so that they can enjoy the benefits of, of NATO membership, they hope eventually as well. So I'm just curious, I, I, I want to ask about your Russia situation, obviously, but what's your take on where things stand now in Ukraine with all of your experience there? Well, I went back about a year and a half ago, just when the war was starting, and I spent a little bit of time with a friend who runs a humanitarian organization, uh, getting supplies to people who needed them in, in tough to access places. And the thing that struck me after that short visit at the beginning of the war was I have never in all of my travels and all of the strange conflict zones that I've been to, I've never seen a clear case of right versus wrong. Often in war, we see a lot of different shades and ambiguity. It was so clear uh, what was happening, what is happening in Ukraine, and uh, that there is a right side there. And the right side there is uh, that people, the Ukrainian people, have a right to their own country. And th the sad thing about this war is it's not just two countries. These are two countries that are very closely linked. In a way, it's kind of like a civil war. It's a, it's a war between the light and dark side of the same people. And, uh, you know, I think, again, as I said, there are a lot of Russians who are appalled by their own government's behavior. We just don't see them. We don't hear their voices uh, because they're censored. 
So let's talk a little bit about what happened to you when you went into a business alliance with Paul Manafort and where did it all go from there? Yeah, Paul and I worked briefly together on a political campaign in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, I went on to uh, set up a business uh, with his former uh, assistant, Konstantin Kalimnik, uh, who had worked for me in Moscow at the IRI. This is a Russian-Ukrainian citizen. And um, it was really through Kostya, through Konstantin, that Paul and I knew each other. Uh, when Donald Trump ran for president, and Paul went to work for Donald Trump, that created a lot of uh, focus and attention on Ukraine and his past work. And there was an effort to create a storyline by which Paul was somehow uh, the intermediary between Trump and the Russians, uh, which uh, to my experience was certainly not true. And I think most people who understood what was happening in the country knew it wasn't true. But politically in our country, it was convenient, uh, at least for one side, to push this narrative. And uh, unfortunately, it, it took a lot of our bandwidth uh, and a lot of our attention off the ball and, and, and our attention away from more serious problems uh, that we probably should have been looking at and focusing on at that time. You know, unravel for our listeners a little bit about who Konstantin Klimnik is and was and what he was suspected of being in that context and why Paul Manafort was ultimately arrested and put in prison. Kostya uh, had worked for the International Republican Institute for seven years by the time I got to Moscow. Uh, he had served in the Russian or Soviet army, but then again, everybody did back in those days. Uh, he spoke very good English. He spoke Swedish as well. And uh, he just struck me as a very capable guy. Um, I didn't run into him again until years later after I'd been in Iraq. Um, and, uh, you know, he had been working with Paul uh, working for Ukrainians in the east of the country who speak Russian. And because of that, they're frequently labeled pro-Russian Ukrainians. I don't think that's true. I don't think mm. if you go to Donetsk or Luhansk or Crimea or other places uh, in, in southeastern Ukraine, you're going to find people saying that they're pro-Russian today. So I think, you know, there's been a, a lot of overgeneralization. But Paul was fairly successful in that country, getting a guy named uh, Viktor Yanukovych elected president in 2009 and was seen as, as one of the more uh, successful American political consultants abroad. You have a lot of Democrats who do this, a lot of people associated with uh, former Secretary Clinton and her husband, a lot of sort of Obama people who, but you don't have a lot of Republicans who do this type of work and that's why Paul kind of stood out. So go back to that. Explain to people when you say this kind of work and supporting, you know, one candidate over another in that kind of environment. Um, Yushchenko was more perceived as being a more Soviet aligned or Russian aligned candidate, correct, in the Ukrainian that was Sphere? generally the perception, yes, because he came from eastern Ukraine, from Donetsk. However, to Paul's credit, I'd say his first trip as president of Ukraine was not to Moscow, but to Brussels. And I think that he was trying for a while, now he backtracked, but he was trying to get Ukraine into the European Union because he saw that as the country's future. Uh, he did, in the end, succumb to Russian pressure. It came down to money, I think, and the Russians offered him money that he desperately needed. Um, and that was his downfall. So it sounds as if you believe he was rightly arrested and charged. 
Well, I think that's, we're talking about Yanukovych. As for Paul, I don't think Paul was necessarily rightly, I mean, there were some issues on his taxes, and I think those, uh, you know, have been widely reported on. The other thing that Paul was charged with was also, like me, violating the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And I never understood uh, the government's charge against Paul in that respect, um, because his infractions seemed uh, marginal, if existent at all. Uh, the thing about the Foreign Agent Registration Act, it was passed in 1938 to root out uh, German Nazis trying to influence uh, Americans relative to the mm -hmm. Second World War. Uh, it's very rarely enforced, very rarely enforced. And the funny thing is when I pled guilty to Judge Amy Berman Jackson, before she accepted my plea, she said to me, you know, if the Supreme Court later invalidates this law, FARA, your conviction will stand. Do you understand that? And I thought it was a very strange thing for her to ask, but I think what it reflects is an understanding that the law itself has some issues, uh, First Amendment issues and other issues. But the bottom line is it's not, it's not, uh, it's not evenly applied. And um, you know, I think we can think of a lot of other instances uh, where it might be more appropriately applied. The Untold Story continues right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. So uh, just to backtrack for a moment, when you talk about the Clintons and the Obamas and um, people who work around them with them having doing similar work in foreign countries. Give us some examples of that in terms of promoting one government over another or one candidate sure. over another. Yeah, with, with Obama, you have David Axelrod's company, uh, AKPD, which has been active in, in a few countries where I've worked, like Nigeria and Ukraine. Um, with the Clintons, there are a number of people. And in fact, I was the first Republican that Stan Greenberg's firm hired, Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner, uh, which became famous with the movie Our Brand is Crisis, uh, which looked at this very sort of narrow type of work uh, with Americans going to other countries and advising them on politics. And, you know, I kind of wonder if this line of work is now extinct, because there was a time when our political mm -hmm. system was the gold standard of the world. And everybody looked to America as <laughs> the strongest and most appealing democracy. I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore. I mean, my competitors were no longer other Americans. They were Israelis or even Brazilians, because wow, other people can really do this work as well. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. You've, you've had a lot of run-ins, a lot of dangerous situations in, in your life, and I think you're being sort of humble about how uh, difficult the work that you did was. Give, give us an example of, of a time when you thought your life was in danger in this work. Well, there are a number of times I write about in the book a time I nearly got kidnapped in Ukraine uh, because one of the oligarchs uh, that our political ads were attacking was, uh, was upset. And uh, they take these things more seriously there uh, and, and, and sometimes deal with them more seriously. I spent a year in Iraq uh, preparing for that country's first election, and our, our home was bombed by a car bomb. They were targeting our neighbors. Uh, thankfully, uh, none of my colleagues nor myself were, were injured in any serious way. Uh, but I've been shot at. Uh, I've been... Uh, I've been stabbed twice on the streets of Washington, D.C., though I'm not sure those were work-related. I, I, I think, or at least I hope, those had more to do with being in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
you know, a, a lot of the, the, the dangerous people that I dealt with and the dangerous situations into which I voluntarily went into are the reason that I've uh, had some of the troubles that I've had. I, I take full responsibility for that. Uh, when you go seeking dangerous situations, uh, you have to be ready to deal with the outcomes. So when you look at what happened during the Mueller investigation and you look back, did it ever occur to you that you should register as a foreign agent? Why didn't you do that? And why didn't yeah. someone advise you, gee, you better do this or you might Good. get into some trouble? Good question. I actually had registered as a foreign agent several times before. I'd registered for an Iraqi politician who I'd worked for, and I'd registered for a Georgian politician who I'd worked for. The reason I didn't register for the Ukrainian is because it was such minor, uh, so marginal, the type of, of, of covered work that I was doing for him. Uh, in other words, I was working for, for my Ukrainian client in Ukraine on Ukrainian elections. And the only overlap with the United States was when he traveled to Washington or I, I helped him write a couple op-eds or opinion pieces that ran in American press. So really those were my crimes. My crimes were uh, uh, helping my Ukrainian client write opinion pieces and asking friends on Capitol Hill to see him when he was in town. So given that, one of the things that we're looking at right now in this Hunter Biden situation, and, and you overlapped a bit. Did you, correct me if I'm wrong, did you do work for Burisma or you were in the energy sector in I, some aspects, I was in the correct? energy section in Kazakhstan a long time ago, but I had no dealings with Burisma. Uh, you know, remember, Martha, Burisma was uh, a company in some disrepute in, in, in Ukraine. Its leader, mm -hmm. who had been a former uh, minister of energy under the Yanukovych government, fled Ukraine and was in London hiding from Ukrainian authorities the entire time that the younger Biden was working for him. Uh, so, you know, these weren't necessarily people one would seek out in Ukraine. Um, but Hunter Biden was a, a year or two ahead of me at Georgetown. I think he ran in somewhat faster circles. I never I never ran into him there. Uh, but we did overlap in different countries, Ukraine obviously being one, Romania and Kazakhstan, uh, others. Um, I don't want to take Hunter Biden's inventory, um, and I don't know all the details of his case, but based on the facts that we have read or seen in the media, uh, it does appear that the Foreign Agent Registration Act might apply to him. And I know that the Justice Department is looking at a new indictment uh, by the end of this month. And uh, frankly, I'd be really surprised if it doesn't include the Foreign Agent Registration Act. How do you feel about the treatment that you received and Paul Manafort received vis-a-vis -vis investigation into Hunter Biden and his activities and the companies that he worked for in Kazakhstan and Ukraine and China? What do you make of it? Well, you know, at one level, Martha, I'd say it's unfair. Um, but one thing this whole process taught me, uh, whether dealing with the criminal justice system, which is something I never expected to deal with in my life, uh, or mm -hmm. the loss that followed from that, the loss of, of reputation, the loss of my life in Washington, the loss of a number of other things, including my marriage, um, people in this country every day deal with unfairness. In fact, I think the greatest challenge we face as Americans right now is how do we deal with the unfairness that exists? How do we address that? That challenge is on us. And I don't believe that God throws anything in our path that we can't handle. So yes, uh, on one level, it's certainly unfair. Um, it strikes me as unfair, but you know, 
unfairness that I have encountered is no different than the unfairness that ordinary people that I run into every day in my mm. current life have to struggle with. And that's something we all have to ask ourselves going forward to be a, a to, you know, really to heal the wounds that exist in this country and to be a better, stronger country. How do we deal with unfairness? Because respect for fairness is the one thing I think that ties all of us together as Americans. So, you know, there, there were many who were uh, pardoned by former President Trump. You and Gates were carved out of that. You were not pardoned. What did you think of that at the time? And do you do you know President Trump? I mean, what what's your relationship like? That's correct, Martha. I was not pardoned, nor was Rick Gates, to my understanding. And I believe the reason why is because both Rick and I cooperated fully with Mr. Mueller and with the Department of Justice. And uh, I mean, my, my philosophy is if the government comes knocking on your door, um, you know, you cooperate. And that's mm -hmm. why I immediately cooperated with Mueller. I did not believe that there had been Russian interference, or at least in any in any serious way. I mean, obviously, there was the, this playing around on Facebook, but I didn't believe there was collusion. However, not to cooperate would, would send the opposite signal. Um, and I thought it was very important to cooperate. On the other hand, I'm not a supporter of, of, of former President Trump. I, I haven't been. Um, and I think I've said critical things about Trump. I didn't seek a pardon. I didn't ask for a pardon. One senator actually did ask for a pardon on my behalf, even though I didn't ask for one. Uh, I didn't I didn't think that, uh, you know, that I was not going to do what was necessary uh, to get a pardon. Um, I think that my own personal uh, sense of dignity is more important than that. I mean, how did you feel as you started to realize the magnitude of this Russian collusion investigation? And when you started seeing people on cable news saying that they were absolutely positive that the Russians had President Trump in their back pocket, that they had something on him, and all of these names, many of which you mention in your book, uh, were all swept up in this huge operation that was designed to make sure that, that Trump was elected and that they were holding something over him that would make it difficult for him to freely execute any policy towards Russia based on, on how entwined he was during his election. That was what they were saying. Well, I'll tell you, when it was all over and I was doing my community service and I was serving drinks at a gala fundraiser uh, for a very good charity in Washington, D.C. that my grandmother founded years ago, um, I ran into the president of Politico, uh, the, the, the media company and the magazine. This is a guy who had been a body man for Bill Clinton, and he looked like mm -hmm. a mini Bill Clinton. And he was a nice enough guy, but he was clearly sort of, you know, a Clinton person in the political in a Politico organization. And he said, you know, Sam, I'm really sorry about everything that happened to you. Um, we all knew there was no collusion. And I was, you know, I was there serving drinks and I had to hmm. be polite, but I might have said, too bad you didn't have a newspaper to write that in. Um, yeah, I, mm. I, I think a, a lot of people, one of the things that Russiagate exposed is how thin the bench of Russia experts in the United States is. Our Russia experts in Washington uh, often miss the ball, and uh, we certainly saw that through Russiagate. Um, but also the cynicism of the system and how readily the system will, uh, will embrace a narrative and run with it, even if the facts don't support that. That was an eye-opening experience for me, and I think it's a lesson for all of us in this country as we go f further uh, to sort of 
maybe mm -hmm. take a step backwards to old-fashioned journalism based on facts and look at what really happened instead of what the narrative informs or what the narrative wants to say happened. And that's what I wanted my book to be about, to write about what happened without political flavor or without trying to make an argument this way or that way. Just say what happened and let people draw their own conclusions. And I you hope that's were, what people find when they read my book. Yeah, I mean, uh, you were swept into this situation and people can judge what they think about, you know, the choices that you made, and the places you worked and all of that as they read through your book. Do you think that Hunter Biden, based on what you know, uh, did anything wrong? Because I'm sure he looks at his own situation and says, you know, I, I was um, helping these other countries. I was helping companies. I was working as a political consultant. And sure, you know, my name probably helped to open some doors for me, but this is a legitimate business and I did nothing wrong. What would you say about I that? Well, I think that's something that Congress is looking at now and let them sort through the facts. Um, you know, why somebody would take three and a half million dollars from Elena Baturina is a real head scratcher. This is a rough Why is that? News. She's a very corrupt Russian, uh, or at least her, her, her husband is the former mayor of Moscow. Um, mm -hmm. she's, she's seen as somebody who can move money around and not generally a positive force for democracy or, or, or uh, improving the lives of Russians. So, uh, you know, that's, that's just something I would wonder about when I look at his case. But again, my personal philosophy is not to try and judge other people. I think that happens too much in this country. There are too many people judging people and often without all the facts. I think the real problem beyond Hunter Biden is the culture of corruption in Washington. And I think that's something he simply represents. It's a culture that, you know, they may decide that, you know, his activities were legal, but were they ethical? Were they moral? Um, should somebody who's taking money from foreign governments be living inside the White House? I mean, these are all, you know, these are all questions that Congress and the courts uh, will have to decide. But, you know, having worked in a lot of countries that are known to be corrupt, like Ukraine and Nigeria, I've, I've said in British Parliament that, uh, you know, our, our country's not that much better. I mean, we have corruption issues and we need to deal with them. And that's the, that's the big question. The American people are tired of the role that special interests play in Washington. We no longer feel that Washington is our city. I think there's a lot more to talk about on that front, Sam, and I thank you for being here. Before I let you go today, what's your hope for your own future, having gone from these very highly educated, as I said before, and, and come from uh, a family that has served the country, you've served all over the world, and then you're serving drinks at, a, at an event in, in Washington, D.C., and working as a line cook. So what is next for Sam Patton? I have to say all of this, uh, paradoxically enough, has made me love my country more. Maybe not my government and certainly not the politicians. Uh, but the, the more I, I meet Americans, certainly meet people in my own state, I moved back to Maine after all of this happened. Uh, you know, I think that the most important work we have to do right now is to heal this country. And if I can do something to be helpful in that respect, I mean, in my youth, I ran around all these countries halfway around the globe trying to spread democracy. I think we need to work in our own country on bringing people back together and getting back to civilized discourse. And if I can help with that, I'd be, I'd be very honored.
Well, Sam, thank you very much for talking with me today. I hope we can talk more about that in the future. The book is called Dangerous Company, The Misadventures of a, quote, foreign agent, a true story. I recommend it. He's your very gifted writer. Um, It's a really fast moving story. And I, I think everybody would learn a lot from it. So, Sam, thank you. I hope we can talk again soon. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much, Martha. Take care. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with the Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.